I'm Karen Dumain, the professional lead for DuoD. Before my co-lead, Paul Taylor-Pitt, left, we recorded this fabulous podcast series talking to world leaders and experts in OD. The DuoD podcast is brought to you by NHS Employers in partnership with NHS England. I'm Karen Dumain. And I'm Paul Taylor-Pitt. Welcome to the third episode of Doing OD in the NHS, The Power of Possibility, a podcast series from Do OD. In episode two, Sheena Cartwright looked at OD through the lens of Gestalt. Today we'll be hearing from OD gurus Mian Chung-Judge and Linda Horbich, friends of Do OD and authors of our favourite handbook on organisation development. On the release of the third edition, Mian and Linda join us to talk about the big changes happening in the world of work. We're changing technology and widening inequality. How can we create work that amplifies the best of humanity? They talk about power, politics, and the courage needed to make a difference when the scale and intensity of change continues to increase. Fantastic to have you both uh, here, Linda and Mian. And um, with your third edition of your book, Organisation Development, A Practitioner's Guide for OD and HR, we know how valued that's been uh, in the NHS and people have continually fed back about how it's uh, like a Bible for them and they use it all the time. And with this third edition, um, I just want curious about what have you seen change in the world of OD between the first and the latest edition? So, Linda, if I can go to you first. Yes, it's been quite a decade, hasn't it? But um, I think I would argue that some of the changes that we've noted are so fundamental that it would have been hard to predict 10 years ago exactly where we are now because there has been some unprecedented change, like the pandemic, obviously. I think there's been a vast um, focus on... Uh, technology advancing at pace, not only to enable new forms of working, but new forms of manufacturing, particularly if you think in in medical world, um, you know, 3D printing, you can have a new tooth built for yourself, you can have um, an operation conducted by robot and so on. So there are broader changes in the way things get done, business gets done, um, that would have been in their infancy 10 years ago that will have big implications for the world of work, employment, types of employment, the types of skills people will need. And um, and indeed, you know, whether that's going to widen some of the social disparities that we're familiar with and were there anyway, some of the underlying um, trends towards inequalities. Um and as, as technology enables more people to be, if you like, laid off as work gets automated, um, it's going to create ever more growing um, pressures on organisations to play a bigger role than they previously might have done as, as corporate citizens. And it's very obvious that, you know, um, if you look at issues to do with diversity and inclusion, as we used to talk about it, um, 10 years ago. Now, um, these issues are such political um, major issues 
um, that organizations can't ignore them anymore. Similarly, climate change, you know, that the need to address major issues to do with the climate have become obvious. So, you know, these broader patterns of change, the social and technological and environmental changes, um, are reflected in the workplace. And the workplace is therefore, you know, along with the impact of the pandemic, undergoing massive change un- at an unprecedented pace in some cases. And the challenge is, how can people keep up with all that? Um, what are the ways of managing people who will be working in different ways going to be? How are you going to create some of these inclusive workplaces that... Um, you know, are at risk in hybrid working, it's, it's quite likely that there will be two-tier workforces evolving in different forms. You know, those who are in the office who have more opportunity than those who are out of the office working from home. So these are just some of the things that we've noticed and, you know, set against a backdrop of um, growing talent shortages of all sorts. You know, it's a, a world in which humans are at a premium more recognised as such than perhaps for a very long time. But at the same time, um, the solutions to how we create workplaces or work that is conducive to making the best of technology and getting the best out of humans, we're still in very early stages. And the leadership implications of all that, we're only scraping the surface of at the moment. Thank you, Linda. And and Mian, what would you add or, or to that? I don't have too many things to add, except I think this, the type of changes Linda outlined is not just about type, but in scale and intensity. Um, but when we actually trying to do this third edition, the struggle between um, Linda and I have is how to keep what we had already. And the conclusion we have is some of those fundamental stuff that make OD still an incredibly important field of knowledge, we decide to keep them. So because um, even though the the what has changed, but human nature has not changed. And the the big question is, can we can we do this third edition by helping people to hold the same role, same passion, same goal, but know how to execute those roles in a different way? So is the whole creative um, way of adapting and being innovative to try, because in OD, as you know, context is everything. The, the last things I want to say is, at least for me, I decided to sound a little bit more directive in my chapters, because I do think there are normative way of going about things, even though the methodology can vary. Even though theory can remain the same, but theory in use should be adapted as we go. So it's really balancing in this third edition to name all the things that Linda so elegantly talk about and yet hold on to the tight stuff that what, what make OD as a field that is such a critical field. I was going to say so much change seems to happen through restructuring, through that physical uh, structural change, although our experience is that that often doesn't make change happen. And so I was just wondering, when restructuring is the default, when that's our go-to, how can we help people understand the difference between structures and organising principles? Um, I think 
perhaps another of the areas that has changed in the last decade between those first and third editions is the notion that um, planning is possible. Um, Now I think there are a lot of people who would say we need workforce planning desperately, but then we're in a world where change is so dramatically quick. Um, What we need is the ability to flex our thinking and not just stick rigidly to those workforce plans. And similarly, with organisation design of the restructuring kind, um, I think this notion, as you said, that um, you know, changing structures is supposed to produce the breakthroughs in almost many, in many, many cases, depending on how the process is handled, it's just not the case. Um, there's very often, um, you know, a, a regression um, if you're not taking a more systemic view about the changes that need to be brought about and how to bring those changes about in a more dynamic way which is where I think the design principles notion and design thinking, you know, where more and more people are involved in sharing their own ideas and developing creative and dynamic ways of organising that, um, in a sense, people are then more open to the idea that we have to keep on reorganising, but not in a chaotic way. It doesn't have to be at a major scale um, to bring about really beneficial breakthroughs if we're learning, actively learning from what's needed and what's working and what's not working and only address um, the biggest problems that we need to address through structures. Because um, structures, is any in any case, you know, it's, it's such a multiverse of words, structures. It includes everything from reward systems to mindsets and you know it's it's thinking more laterally perhaps about what is it in the way we organize ourselves that could be different and better um whilst also hanging on to what works for the time being and being open to needing to change again and it's not a bad thing it's part about part of retaining our viability and our health and being sustainable clients or customers or patients and Mian, how do you hold this concept of the distinction between structure and organising principles, if you were to explain that to someone who wasn't so familiar with our thinking? Um, the thing is, a lot of people who don't understand these things, they, they fundamentally think the configuration of the organisation is something really important in all dimension. But if we care about culture and build cultural thinking into the design, then the first thing we need to say, well, what is the organization principle that we really want to do to build this organization up? Shall we have a flatter structure? Shall we, what is the decision-making process? And um, do people who know the data of the day-to-day work in this area should actually be able to have a voice? Do we, should we have actually a knowledge management process to capture those wisdom? I mean, it's a number of questions that is borderline, not borderline, it's actually fundamentally about cultural issue that you say, how do we organize decision-making, information flow, 
um, we want collaboration, which other department cannot deliver their key results without falling into the um, the collaboration with other unit? How do we promote those unit? Because, because the thing is form follow function. We can't actually go and say, well, now we need to promote collaboration, <laughs> you know, when there were no pro organizing principle behind those. So that's wow. what I, I want to say is I want people to think a lot more about organization principle uh, first before the config, physical configuration. And in that way, the organization can be a lot more agile because you can shift. So like the other evolution uh, model of organization, like the bubble organization, the network organization, so that you can put together, break apart, put together, break apart, but never lose the organization principle. So interesting as well, because I think one of the things that um, came out through the COVID and the NHS response, and particularly for OD practitioners and across actually the service, was that real value of collaboration and really um, being able to work quickly um, because of the, you know, there was such a shared purpose and people were had to work at speed. And actually, I think one of the things that has been kept is some focus on those organisational principles and a recognition but we need to hold those because we do talk that we've easily about collaboration. We've got the ICS system. Um, and I think that's such a good point, Mian, about how do we make sure we focus on those organisational principles and, and hold to that. And I think one of the struggles we hear from uh, OD practitioners is that they are finding that quite difficult to do in organisations. And I wondered if you had any uh, words of wisdom, Ian, to them to help support them to hold on to those organizational principles, design principles? Well, it's it's really hard for them because uh, NHS is still primarily a hierarchical organization. So the power and politics is real. And the organization principles seldom can go from the ground up, has to, has to go from senior people, actually work out the mission, the vision, the strategic impact they want to create in the world they function. And the, the wise leader would then involve other people to say, if that's the way that we need to operate and that's the product and service we need to do, how should we organize ourselves given we have 500 people in this unit? However, that is not happening um, as a norm. So I wonder whether OD people should really wind themselves back and say, am I doing a good job educating, being a courageous intervener, speaking up to those people and say, we're not doing another restructuring without these. So it is really a very unsafe area for hierarchical, for workers within hierarchical organization. But I do think that's why the use of self the power politics and determined to be a lot more courageous follower and intervener are some of the major agenda for NHS worker because the structure is not going to change, the culture is not going to change overnight, but things need to shift. As both of you all know, we're just uh, in the NHS, we're doing a future HR and OD uh, vision and a report looking at the future of HR and OD going forward. So, Linda, we wanted to ask, particularly at this time in the NHS, about how can our colleagues with an HR background 
find their way into the OD field? And what are some of the key qualities that they might want to develop? develop? Well, I think it's happening to some extent already on quite a scale. Um, And I think there is something about um, the people I notice who are doing much of the um, OD thinking and practice through HR are people who are deliberately trying to make a bit of time to think and act differently. Uh, I think because HR is under such huge pressures um, operationally, um, and particularly when there are ongoing challenges, for instance, for recruitment and other things, um, it is very understandable that people always say, I'm far too busy to sit back and look at the broader picture and what I'm trying to do here and how I can make more with do more with it. Um, so there is something about the people who are migrating into OD practice tend to be those who do find a way to organise the work that they're doing such that they can um, spend some time reviewing with their teams uh, what's what are we trying to do here, what's the bigger win, how can we involve other people in it, how can we perhaps rejig some of our practices by actually involving some of the people on the receiving end, those kinds of things, actually experimenting using some of the OD methodologies around the core work. Um, And I think there's something around, um, because for me, OD is such a potentially strategic contribution. Um, There's the ability to look at what's happening more broadly uh, outside the organisation and bring some of that fresh thinking into it and encourage and enable other people to do that, you know, to prioritise um, that scanning function, particularly amongst people in line management and leadership roles, um, but within the HR and OD community itself. Um, I think there's, to that extent, people are starting to build up um, cadre of of change agents, to give them a, a, a different, you know, the old cliched word, uh, at different levels because they're deliberately acting themselves as integrators, as um, nudges of collaboration, catalysts for change. And uh, they're connecting people up. You know, they're making opportunities happen for people by using their networks and seeing themselves as part of an ecosystem. So I think there's there's something about, the role, particularly noticeably L&D professionals, very often are the ones to begin that migration because for many of them, um, they've got the focus on individuals and groups and the dynamics that link to those to, to a different extent than in an OD role, but they're already in, nudging in that direction. Um, and I think it's more building the understanding of what the organization's trying to do, more clearly embedding that into the methodologies that you then choose to use in different circumstances and not just being a one-trick pony. So I think there's something around, um, you know, finding ways to effectively start to use OD in a sort of leadership capacity through an HR role. Um, whether it's taking, as I say, one block of activity to do with improving the employee experience um, for a group of people, or whether it's working with 
leaders to um, get them thinking and acting differently, addressing key issues that need to be addressed that have longer-term consequences. This means you've got to have a strategic view of the organisation and be willing to step forward, you know, be proactive really, um, to listen a lot, you know, that listening deeply, noticing where things need to happen and intervening in the system to help create solutions um, to some of these problems that risk becoming endemic. And, and then also being able to influence other people's thinking, you know, being willing to work as part of an integrated team, for instance, with other professionals and other, other line managers to make more change happen that's con- constructive and addressing some of the things that people and the organisation needs. So I think HR has a potentially key leadership role to play if, if an OD mindset comes with it and the ability to use yourself as an instrument, as, as Mayan often has said, um, to magnify the impact that as a function HR can have um, and, and doesn't just see itself as an instrument of management, but as a shaper of, you know, building healthy um, practice and healthy workplaces in which people can thrive and do their best work. Uh, th- yeah, thank you, Linda. And I think as well that the future report uh, talks about the people profession. And as you were saying, really, to enable all people professionals to have some of that OD mindset. And, you know, we talk, of course, around transformation and system and that digital transformation, the things you were talking about. And Mianne, I was curious about for your, I know you've been doing some fantastic work around some OD capabilities. What's your view on some of those that would be really helpful and useful for the HR practitioner um, uh, for now and for the future? It's, it's wonderful to follow Linda because she mapped out almost everything. I just want to emphasize her last two sentences. Um, I love my extra colleague to stand tall, stand in their power, like Michael West's article long time ago about when HR function well is a matter of life and death in, in hospital. Um, so HR colleagues need to understand the power, the formal power that come with their knowledge and not to be so subservient, stand in power to actually be a shaper of the leaders they serve, not as a compliant follower. So the only thing I want to add is, I think HR colleagues may find it interesting, first of all, but it also might be able to, by pursuing the following knowledge, will ensure they become quite magical. Um, They should pursue knowledge in human dynamics, really take an interest in applied behavioral science, because it is an organization where humanity touch humanity. And so they need to know about, you know, the human nature and how do we actually interact and what conditions that would give out this amazing flourishing feel so that people can bring their best self to work. So human dynamics, group dynamics, applied behavioral science, the use of power and politics, and finally, is in every single moment how they how do they become potent um, intervener? Um, 
I'm really struck by some of the themes that have come up in the conversation about this widening uh, social disparity, the gap of equality, uh, you know, the potential future with a two-tier workforce, and really just scanning the environment and looking at the the increasing urgency and willingness, I guess, that organisations are facing around having quite challenging conversations about racism, about sexism, about homophobia in the workplace. And Mian, I know it's been such a core theme of your practice as an OD practitioner for uh, a focus on inclusion and social justice. What advice or support do you think we can offer to other OD professionals about how they can really make a difference in this space in our organisations? Well, I just want to say that if we really do honour our own and other people's humanity, social justice and inclusion will become automatically a, a foundational part of anything we do. And I think that, first of all, examine our own value. Do we get bothered or are we comfortable with the status quo? And the second question is, how do we find alliance within the system, the power system, to do this work? Because OD people should never, by ourselves, trying to fight the social justice cause. We can, we can, we we are helping profession. Helping profession is very different from pushing people to the edge, like campaigner. And the minute OD people become campaigner. Uh, people become weary of us. So there's a, a issue. Let me give you some good news. And, and if you don't mind, I talk about my daughter. Rebecca is fourth-year junior doctor, absolutely really into the social justice issues. So she and a few junior doctor has written the guy um, to emergency, accident emergency service for homelessness, for homeless people, and now is up in the wall of St. Mary's. And she then get together with another group of uh, junior doctor looking at the police bill and how that actually they go against that because of health inequality. And then they also organize um, health inequality along the line of race and uh, ethnicity. And so when you actually maybe we focus too much time on consultant, there's a whole group of junior doctor rising up tackling this issue find them in your institution, support them, teach them facilitation skill. Even though Rebecca is keen on that, I'm sure she could actually improve on facilitation, uh, which her mother would not be able to teach her. Okay, <laughs> so, so other OD, OD practitioner need to go to those hospitals, find out these junior doctor. And by the way, she says some of her senior people are really supportive of her. So don't start with your organization as a blank canvas. Find those people who are already doing some work. Align yourself with them, support them, give them all these skills. Um, because there is, let me just say this one thing, maybe that could be my ending statement. Organization, I think there's a moral, philosophical question OD people hasn't asked themselves. What is the purpose of organization? And this is my biased answer. Organization is a container to provide a platform for all those who come in to do the work. But in the process of doing the work, the organization should also <clears throat> provide a platform for them to be more aware of their being. 
you know, who they are, how they show up. And then also the organization provide a platform for them to engage in a lifelong becoming process. That means how do they become more humane and more who they are and doing great work so that this platform will grow those people who contractually or not contractually work for the organization to be able to bring their best self to the organization. Well, why do organizations should do that? Because that is a container in which people deploy their intellect, emotional energy and value in it. So what is the purpose? If we do this technique, if we hung up about technique and methodology or one theory over two theory, we are missing the whole thing. When organization is healthy, we absolutely contribute to to the maintenance of civil society. I can't tell you how much I can weep about the degrading of civil society right now. And it's not going to get better. And therefore, what is our duty in work and out of work to actually fulfill some of those founders' early value principle? We are shamelessly humanistic. We shamelessly are fighting against inequality of all form. We determine to build healthy organization and healthy individual in there. Amazing. What a Thank statement. Yeah, oh, no. Thank you. Wow, I feel like standing up and cheering. <laughs> we'll be printing that one off. Yeah. Um, Linda, Mian started her answer to that question by saying we need to honour each other's humanity. How, in, this, in the sense of organisational values, can we still hold space and respect for humanity when technology might be creating a sense of scarcity where actually it's difficult to honor each other's humanity because we're we're kind of fighting each other for jobs well as you say it's absolutely not easy because um i mean the issues we're talking about are fundamentally about perceptions of fairness and you know clearly in a context of scarcity or impending scarcity um, of jobs, whereas at the moment the issue is more um, scarcity of people to do the jobs in, in certain arenas, um, there's bound to be more fear, more sense that um, people are missing out. Um, you know, you could say you can build a whole government policy built on the notion of we've got to level up to enable everybody to have the same kind of opportunities. Um, the the detail is what matters, and I think in practice uh, it's looking at organisational policies and the extent to which they in any way fundamentally enable the values of the organisation to be realised. Are they just words on, on paper, metaphorically speaking, or does the walk follow the talk? What are the recruitment practices like? How do leaders behave? Who gets promoted and who doesn't? Why are we not attracting certain people to certain kinds of jobs? And beyond that, it's saying how can we proactively seek to build relationships and partnerships and sources of the kinds of people that we'd like to bring in that are representative of the society that our organisation serves? So again, it's it's more without social engineering, 
um, as as the end point. It's about how can we shape a context where more of what we need to see happen and want to see happen happens naturally in inverted commas. Um, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and um, complexities around the whole diversity and inclusion and equalities area, um, uh, which has been politicised um, uh, and and. You know, the challenge is that if you get a cancel culture, um, whether it's driven from the right or the left wing, it doesn't matter. Effectively, it stops people from listening to each other and taking entrenched positions. And when it, it's in a context where work uh, is, is in short supply, that becomes more and more problematic. So again, an OD um, contribution is helping people to come together, to listen to each other and understand what needs to be different in the lived experience of these values um, and drawing people from the different communities um, that are feeling most aggrieved or missing out, using your data to find out who is actually missing out on the opportunities that everybody else has the opportunity to take for granted. So it's it's about using the data you've got, but also enabling the conversations to take place through which better practice and better policy um, can be enacted. I think, and I think when we're facing such challenging macro uh, issues in the world, um, we each function, each area of expertise cannot by ourselves actually solve this intractable um, issues. So I guess, not that I guess, I want to say HR, OD, um, any other behavioral, applied behavioral scientists, we need to collaborate and deliver both individually as well as collectively to support the world, um, being pessimistic, not to go chaotically downward, but also um, optimistically can actually scale up there's a recent book by a Belgium called Bergman talking about we need to rediscover the goodness of human being. And that's what we need in time like this. Yeah, I think, as has been said, uh, we are living through unprecedented times. It's such a cliche, but it is true. And uh, to that extent, everything is up for rethinking, redoing, and while we're doing all that, the world's changing, nothing's standing still. So there is something about how we as people professionals can both do, change things for the better, and at the same time reflect and learn from what's happening and encourage other people to do that with us. And this is why I think OD um, has got such a key role to play because it is absolutely the heart of resilience is in the culture and the people. And, you know, we've got so many ways of working with people. And as Mayan said, working with other professionals, working with um, managers and with the, work, the workforce remotely and face-to-face -face, um, to bring about some of the changes that organizations if they're going to be healthy in the future will need to to embrace so uh, 
I like to be cautiously optimistic that OD can make the difference that makes the difference. Huge thanks to Mian and Linda for this wonderful conversation. I'm really reflecting on power and it's something that we often don't talk about enough or we talk about it in quite uh, traditional ways and I love the encouragement for us to think about how power and particularly politics show up and the way that we need to really consider how we respond to that because it's not going to go away if we ignore power it will just transform into something else so I'm really curious how I might practice that a bit differently. The wonderful conversation with me, Jan and Linda really brought me back to my core values and ethics about why I work in OD. I love that quote of shamelessly humanistic, shamelessly fighting against inequality and our determination to build healthy organisations and systems. It also made me feel really optimistic about the future and the role of OD. Thanks so much for listening to this DoOD podcast. We'd love to know what you think. You can chat to us on Twitter at NHSE underline DoOD or email your thoughts to DoOD at NHSEmployers.org and Google NHS DoOD for all of the resources on our website. We look forward to welcoming you to our next episode. <laughs>